So first of all, let me add my Mother's Day greetings to all the moms and grandmoms and great moms who are out there who are watching uh, by the live stream or here or out in the tent. Um, happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> uh, I know the term real heroes has been used a lot, but um, I think that the evidence of real heroes is that they're not jumping up to take a bow. Um, quite the contrary, they often feel inadequate or insecure um, or they wish they had done more. And uh, so no matter where you are in that process, uh, moms, I feel like you guys are the real heroes 24 hours a day, and I hope that you can feel our love for you, that you can hear our thanks and feel our gratefulness. So thank you very much. Yeah, let's go ahead and clap for the moms. So I am really excited to be here with you guys this morning. I'm probably a little too excited to be here this morning. So I uh, got, got up early, got into my car early, put on the worship music, did my seatbelt, backing out of the driveway, I'm checking my mirrors, I've got that nice backup camera. And so just as I get there, I pull up to stop at the end of the driveway, check my mirrors and my camera again, I'm all clear, I let off the brake, and for some reason I just look to the left and there's this lady jogger, 15 feet from my car, she had stopped, and she gave me that look that says, you didn't see me, did you? And I gave her that look like, no, I didn't. But would you like to go to church? Um, so I'm really glad that God saved me from having a very memorable Mother's Day early this morning, and I'm glad I came here with you. So let's start by just let me, let me tell you a little about a job that I used to have. So I used to, in the early, in the mid-2000s, I, uh, I did flipping houses. Now, flipping houses is a, is a relatively simple process. It's difficult, but it's a simple process. You try to find what we called ugly houses, and you buy them at a discount. And then you go in, you examine them, you, you, know, you do an inspection, and you replace the kitchens, you replace the bathroom, fresh paint, fresh carpet, refinish the floors, and usually the, the price jumps in, in, in the, the value jumps. And so we did that with a number of different houses. And, and uh, the only issue is when you, when you inspected the rest of the house, there's one place you really needed to expect because lots of times you'd see a dent here or, or something there or the you know, old kitchen. All of those things were cosmetic and they were easy to fix. But then when you got into the basement and you looked at the foundation of the house and you saw cracks, then you, it wasn't cosmetic. This became a foundational problem and it was really a big deal. So our passage today is, is 1 Corinthians 6, and this is where Paul begins to talk about lawsuits in the church. And at first you may begin to think, well, is that cosmetic or is that foundational? Well, let's see what Paul finds out. Um, so as, as Paul would, be, would examine uh, the church, um, think about where we've been through 1 Corinthians. So first of all, we had, we had chapter 3 where there were divisions in the church. The second thing is we had chapter 4 where there was arrogance among the, the church in Corinth because of the economic prosperity that they were experiencing. And then chapter 5, last week, Brendan was talking about the sexual immorality. So if you think about that, you're thinking, gosh, those are pretty heavy-duty hitters. I'm thinking, this, the whole lawsuits thing, that's probably more of a cosmetic issue that Paul's finally gotten to. Well, we may think what's a few lawsuits among friends, but let's see what that really means. So before we read the text, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we open your word, give us your eyes, give us your mind, give us your heart, and Lord, block out all the distractions <laughs> that help us 
that keep us from focusing on the message that you have for us today, that we may understand you better and grow to love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you could turn your Bibles or your phone apps or whatever that you're using to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible here or not one at home, um, we're going to pop them all up on the screen ahead of us, behind me, ahead of me. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So the title of our message today is Quarrels, Courts, and the Christian in Conflict. And the big idea is God's people should settle disputes God's way. So let's take a quick look at the, at the legal structure in Corinth. So Corinth is found in modern-day Greece now. It's only 133 miles from the cultural hub of Athens. The ancient Greek uh, empire was very forward-thinking. Uh, they had a very developed philosophy and thought process, and they also had a very developed court system. However, Corinth was now part of the Roman Empire, and therefore they were under Roman law. All cases were tried in, in the Roman Empire uh, by, before a governor. And we see this in Acts 24, where we see a trial firsthand as Paul uh, is tried before the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. And we know these courts were corrupt, and very often cases didn't go to whoever had the best case, but to whoever had the largest bribe. And again, we see that in Acts 24. As Paul was in jail, and he languished there another two years as Felix was waiting for a bribe from either Paul or a friend of Paul's. So the courts were infamously corrupt, and the farther you got from Rome, the more corrupt they became. These Roman judges were not appointed because of their biblical compass. So let's break the passage down and see what Paul, has, what Paul saw in the, in the church. So first of all, Paul noted that they were taking their, their disputes outside the church, okay? They were acting like non-believers, and they were adopting a secular model for resolving the conflicts that they had. They were forgetting that they were citizens of heaven, that they were God's children, that they were brothers and sisters, and they were destroying their witness. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But not the Corinthians. I love you except when we disagree and then I'm going to have my day in court. Or, although I'm, uh, I'm the disciple of a loving and forgiving God, uh, I'm just like non-believers and I'm going to take every grievance I have, which includes every grievance I have with you, to court. So imagine the, uh, the Corinthian believer, he's talking to some neighbors, and he says, you know, I, 
I can't wait to tell you about this loving God who died for your sins and rose again from the dead. But if during that time your dog digs up my rose bush, be prepared for a subpoena because I will take you to court. How did we get here? How did the Corinthian church get to this point? What can we learn from how they got here? Well, I think as we peel this apart, we're going to find that there are four foundational issues, and we can learn from those. So the first is that the Corinthian church had forgotten the position of the church. God made the church an army. He made the church a fortress. But he also made the church a home, a haven, and a family. When you have a problem within the family, you work it out inside the family. You see a brother in sin, God provides a a remedy in Matthew 18. Do you have conflict with a believer? God addresses that in James 4. They had forgotten the uniqueness, the unique position that Christ had for the church, for his bride. The church, while the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the body of Christ was doing everything we could to destroy it. They had forgotten what made the church the church. Uh, The second thing is that we had forgotten the authority of God. God rules us, not the, not the city fathers of Corinth, and not the Roman Empire. The world's way is not God's way. So I want to provide an example of that, that um, of how God works differently, and I want to do it in the realm of conflict. So the courts are trying to find right and wrong. They're trying to find a winner and a loser. They're trying to find guilt and innocence. God deals with the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard the heart, for out of it come the wellsprings of life. And that's where things get different. The Bible is full of stories where God uses places, things, and circumstances for his glory and for our good. Not only that, but God allows conflict for our benefit. So if you reached out to me and you were asking for some marriage counseling, because there was conflict in your marriage, or you had conflict in another relationship, I, would start, I wouldn't be questioning you about who was right and who was wrong, or who had the strongest argument, because it's always the wife's. But I... <laughs> that's right. I heard a lot of amens there. Um, but I would ask you more about the situation, because that's the vehicle that God is using to reveal your heart. So if you want judge handed down, you can go to the courts. But if you want your heart probed, contact me. You can send me an email. My email address (laughs) is brendan (laughs) at gracecommunity.org. So I don't mind lying during announcements. It's lying from the pulpit that scares me. Okay. Just send them there and we'll take care of them later. Okay, so why do we need to focus on the heart so much? Because that's where the problem is. Why do we need this spiritual heart surgery? Because that's the offending organ. So if I could have the slide on on James 4. So we're going to use James 4 as sort of our Rosetta Stone. It's going to peel everything apart and it's going to pull everything back together again. Okay? So let's go through James 4. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room in there for a good attitude, was there? So what is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us that the battle is our passions, that we're fighting our desires. James is is saying that the war is within, it's within our hearts. If God has our heart, he has all of us. If he doesn't have our heart, he has none of us. In in, uh, In conflict, the secular court system asks, Who has the best argument? God's loving process within the family allows conflict so that he might use it to refine and grow us. It's not about the argument. It's about the heart. So I'm less interested in what God wants to do through you and a lot more interested in what God wants to do in you. So let me drop in a really important word of caution here, okay? This passage in 1 Corinthians 6 has often been misused to result, and the result is to protect forms of abuse under a false shield of Scripture. If I could simplify the dividing line between the two, it's conflict and crime. If there's a conflict between believers, God has given the church authority and capacity to address it. However, if the case is a crime, or physical abuse, or sexual abuse, God has provided the civil authorities under Romans 13 and 1 Peter 3. This is important to understand to protect our church and to protect our children, okay? Next slide. The third thing the Corinthian church did was they had forgotten the promises of God. 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are kings and priests to God. Deuteronomy 32.10 says that we are the the apple of God's eye, and he repeats it in Psalm 17. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. He's coming back, and he's taking us with him. Death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. So we are more, in this passage, we're, we're qualified to judge the angels. So why aren't we qualified to serve in judgment above people who have no biblical reference? Why aren't we more competent to counsel than those whose heart is not set on God? So the last foundational issue is that the church of Corinth had forgotten the grace that they had received. Our judgment as believers is tempered and refined by an experiential love that touched touches even the most recent convert. Two weeks ago, Brendan closed his sermon by having us meditate on on Ephesians 3. I want to bring that slide up again. Now, we entered this in the middle of a prayer Paul has for the church at Ephesus. So starting at verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
So there's two things here that I want to point out. The first one is around the word comprehend. That means to understand. So Paul's praying that we understand the love of God. They want to understand the breadth, the length, all the dimensions of the love of God. That's Paul's first prayer. But it's not just academic. He talks about to know the love of God. That's an experiential knowledge that we can actually experience God's love through the cross, through his forgiveness, through his kindness. That's what Paul wants us to do. So, when we say to that brother, when we, uh, what do we say to that brother or sister in Corinth? A brother is, we're, you're nose to nose with another believer, and somebody's about to throw the first punch. We're a sister who's in conflict and about to end a relationship that has been, that has been long-standing and long-serving. Our redeemed perspective comes from someone who has sinned much and has been forgiven much. And that's the different viewpoint we have. So let me summarize. So we've seen the issue of conflict reveals what we think about the church, what we think about the promises of God, and even what we think about the grace that we've received. This is critical because it deals with the heart. So now you're all great law students, and we're going to have a case study because that's what great law students do. It's traditional to study the law through old cases to see what they would reveal to us. And it's also, as good biblical scholars, which you all are, is that we study Scripture by comparing it to other Scripture passages, and we're going to do both. So there's a pretty famous court case in the New Testament, and we're going to use that as our case study. So we're going to rewind the clock about five weeks to Good Friday, and, uh, and we're going to call the case the people versus Jesus. That's what we'll do. And so, so how does this case, you know, does this case really apply? Well, let me see. Conflict among, uh, uh, within the church? Check. A dispute being handled outside the church? Check. Uh, one of the parties is going to judge the angels? Yep, check. It's all good. Okay. So this is the penultimate case or the penultimate example of the guilty bringing a court case against the innocent. So what can we learn by what Jesus did? Jesus participated. He defended himself, albeit in a limited way, but he didn't say, you know, you know this, isn't, this court doesn't, doesn't have any control over me. He participated in his own court case. But what were Jesus' anchors? What were his principles and what were his boundaries within that court case? Well, I think there were three. First of all, the, his faith, his motivation, and his goals. Jesus' ultimate faith was not in the court system, and definitely not in a strong defense. But it was in his father. Jesus knew his father loved him. He knew his father was in control. And that's where his faith was planted. I had a long drive a little while ago with my, with my daughter, and she was talking about a counseling situation she was having with another young mother. And she's had a number of these with different people, and she says, you know, Dad, it always seems to come down to one of two things. Either they don't trust that God is good or they don't trust that God is great. And I just looked at my daughter and I smiled. <laughs> I was a little proud. But she's right. God loves us. He's good. He's kind. And he's in control. He's great. So what was Jesus' motivation? He was motivated not by winning but he was motivated by reconciliation. We can see that because 
at Jesus' ultimate point of suffering, when he was on the cross in the ultimate physical pain, when he was separated from God the Father in ultimate spiritual pain, he revealed his true heart. Father, forgive them. His motivation was reconciliation. And what was Jesus' goal? Well, he was committed to a goal, and that goal was the Father's glory. We just need to rewind that clock about another 12 hours, and we see that Jesus was committed to God's glory above all else because he said, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, what Jesus didn't do is just as important as what he did do. He didn't deny the court's authority. He didn't come out and say, you're not the boss of me. He didn't have a self-centered attitude, and he didn't hold a grudge or slander them behind closed doors. TMZ didn't film him saying, do you know who that I am? Do you know who I am? None of that, nope. But the most interesting thing, the most fascinating thing that Jesus wasn't, Jesus didn't do, was he wasn't surprised. Amazingly, uncharacteristically, and, and characteristically, he wasn't surprised. He wasn't surprised at the depth of their sin. He wasn't surprised at the level of their treachery. And he wasn't surprised at how far the opposition would go to find him guilty. He wasn't surprised, after all, he wrote James 4. He wasn't surprised because that's why he came. So what can we learn from this case study in justice or injustice? Jesus wasn't a doormat. He defended himself. His goal was not to win the case, but to glorify God. And Jesus won the verdict, ultimately, because it was all about the human heart. The battleground was, and always has been, our hearts. That's why the passage isn't cosmetic. It's foundational. So we need a model for resolving conflict. So let's get one. So before I start, there's one thing I need to believe. I'm going to believe that God has ordained this conflict for his glory and for my good. And I have to do that for me to have a God-centered view of conflict. I have to believe that God's in control of the situation. So in my model of conflict, step one, I'm going to commit to glorifying God no matter what happens. I'm going to commit to glorifying God even and probably that there's going to be a material cost to me that's going to hurt in worldly things that I value. Step number two, I'm going to take the log out of my own eye first. I'm going to examine my own heart. I'm going to deal with my own sin before I ever take it to somebody else. Now, for me to do that, I'm probably going to need somebody outside of my own skin. It's going to be my wife. It's going to be a trusted friend. But I don't see my sin accurately. And you know what? I probably don't see your sin accurately either, especially if it's offended me. So I'm going to take somebody, I'm going to get the log out of my eye first. Step three, uh, now I'm ready to approach that brother or sister and address the conflict in a God-centered manner. And step four, whatever happens, I'm going to do all that I can within the limits of, prior, of, of propriety to be at peace with that individual. So I can't take credit for those. That's Ken Sandy um, from the book Peacemaker, which I highly recommend. So... Um, I want to walk us now into an application. Uh, at this point, I want to have you ask yourself two questions. 
The first question is, when you're in the middle of conflict, who do you trust? In times of difficulty, what are you trusting in? When times of conflict, where does your trust lie? So second question is, what's your motivation for conflict? Above all else, what do you want out of that? What do you want to happen as a result of that conflict? Those are the two questions. And then we're going to also give you a couple of verses to take home. Um, and meditate on these verses as you're asking yourself those questions. James 4, what's your motivation in conflict? And 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23, God's plan for those who are wronged. So your homework is to pull out James 4 and 1 Peter 2 and reread them and see if God brings up somebody who has either dealt with you wrongly and that you need to seek forgiveness, uh, who has either dealt with you wrongly or that you have dealt with wrongly and seek reconciliation. You see, this is not cosmetic. It's really foundational. We're not in need of a Band-Aid, but a heart transplant. But God, in his kindness, provided one through his son. So I want to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to close out with a story, um, a painful story of mine. Um, when I went to college, there was a, a, I was a, like three bedrooms that went into a living room kind of thing, so it was a suite. So I had a roommate, but I really had like and, uh, four other suite mates. And um, when I first moved in, I looked at the other you know, roommate, suite mates that I had, and I was, I was very happy with everybody except one guy. And I just didn't like him. I really didn't like him. Interestingly enough, his name was George. Um, in God's sense of humor. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, I've really wrestled with how to explain how I treated George. It wasn't that I treated him rudely. It wasn't that I was mean to him. I was really over the top. I, I, I tried to, to intimidate him. I was mean to him. I was rude to him. I, I can't think of anybody in my entire life that I had such a focused campaign on trying to make somebody uncomfortable. Um, I was that nightmare that parents have when they send their kids off to school and they're thinking, I don't know who my roommate's going to be. I don't know who he's going to... You know, I was not the guy you wanted to have your kids have any kind of contact with the way I treated George. And so after about three months, George got uncomfortable enough that he transferred out. And he left. Uh, he transferred... Uh, he, he exchanged rooms within our dorm. Um, and, and from that point forward, I, you know, I don't really, I don't think I saw George. I don't remember seeing him. I maybe once or twice for the next four years through campus. We both ended up graduating from the same school. And, and um, so I just didn't see him. 20 years later, I get a phone call out of the blue. It's George. He lived in Fairfax, Virginia. He had been in Pennsylvania. He was driving through. He said, George, I'm coming really close to your house. I'd like to see you. Well, I was changed by that. And I said, George, I'd love to see you. And it was about an hour before he showed up. And I, that was an hour of hell. I, all I, I just kept reliving all the things that I said and that I did and how uncomfortable. And that's just such a weak word that I made George. George pulls up. We decided to take a walk around the neighborhood and talk. And I go for about three minutes 
And he's just asking me about the family. And finally, I just lost it. I came unglued. George, I'm so sorry. The way I treated you was inhumane. It was wrong. It was hurtful. It was savage. George is about five or six inches short of me. Just reaches up and starts to rub my back, which was worse. (laughs) The way I treated the guy, and he's comforting me. He said, George, I just wanted to see you because the way you lived, I thought you needed to hear about Jesus. Boy, is he right. He was so right. Well, he, he needed to hear what Jesus had done since then, and he was so encouraged. And over the last 20 years, we've exchanged emails and Facebooks and things like that. Until a year ago, George had been battling cancer. And he went home to be with the Lord. I have a post from Facebook. June 10th, 2020. Dear friends, I saw the oncologist today. He told me the cancer around my abdomen has gotten worse and the chemo isn't helping. Basically, he told me, I probably have only a couple more months to live. George had less than two weeks. He said, please pray for the discomfort. Oh, wait a minute. Let me not miss the good part. The news doesn't surprise me. I knew it was coming because I've been feeling worse and throwing up more. So I'm actually very excited about going to heaven and seeing Jesus. George had an incredible impact on my life because he showed me what 1 Corinthians 6 looked like when you have a dispute and how to reconcile God used that, that whole story. God allowed that to happen. And I wanted to share it with you because I hope it impacts you too so that George's life can live in through the rest of us because he was a beautiful picture of love and reconciliation and what a disciple of Christ looks like. So right now, we're going to sing a song, Debtor to Mercy. And I pray that you sing that song with all your heart in light of this message and what we now know about how much God loves us. I am, but I'm also going to have somebody else in mind too.